Okay, welcome to Edu Weather. This is another episode of our amazing podcast, Edu Weather. <laughs> amazing. This is like, <laughs> lockdown's gone to your head, Jason. <laughs> I'm of our mediocre <laughs> mid-table obscurity podcast. What are we discussing this evening, Jay? Um, so this week, or this evening, um, sorry, I'm all over the place. This week we are talking about digital learning. Yeah. Very relevant topic at this time, I'd imagine, for a number of people, and probably unlike yourself and, and, and me around digital stuff we're probably really heavily invested we've done a lot with it um, we're really keen enthusiastic other people have probably been kind of forced to adopt it is that fair to say in this current climate um, and probably I think the absolute benefit of all of this is people are going to be much more confident with it in the long run what do you think I I agree wholeheartedly. I think there was a there was a massive exponential increase in terms of people using technology, using it to its like far greater potential than they ever thought they would. And I think what I noticed certainly, and this just anecdotally, I suppose, but is that whenever I've been thinking about digital strategy, changing digital learning, moving forward, there's always been a plan that accounts for maybe three years worth of a strategic plan in order for it to, to roll out, to get to a place, an end goal, which is even even that end goal I've had to make um, allowances for bringing everybody along and making things consistent, whereas we have rocketed through what my wildest yeah. That's fair. So what you're saying is we've been so ambitious, but it's happened so quick as well. So yeah. probably if we tried to plan for this, it would have taken three years and we might have had scratched the surface around digital learning, whereas actually, you know, the potential is there that every school in Scotland um, in the UK um, has access to some sort of online virtual learning environment, which is amazing. And I want to keep the tone just now, right at the start, I want to keep it relatively uh, celebratory where we can think about the positive aspects of what's gone very well in terms of digital learning. I think I would like to, at some point, focus on equity and issues of access in, in that wider sense. But just now, there are so many um, wonderful examples, whether you're looking on Twitter, whether you're discussing with colleagues, whether you're looking on any sort of website or listening to a podcast or anything, so many examples of people coming together to collaborate. And for me, the collaboration has been the the standout step forward that we've made, I would say, in terms of digital learning. And I think that probably links into you. Maybe previously people have been reluctant because they've not been as confident to share, whereas actually everyone is in that boat now. So that kind of natural collaboration has just happened and, and people are are trusting, they're sharing their views openly. They're, they're, what I'm seeing is people aren't afraid to try things and they, they aren't afraid to ask for help and 
you know, they're they're really going for it. And probably this is one of the, the huge positives out of all of this, that we would never have made such strides in our digital learning as we have now. Do you think, or what do you think we need to do when we get back to capitalise on that? professional learning that's taken place without just reverting back to status quo? Yeah, I, I, I actually think things are going to change quite significantly and I think, I hope that we learn from what has worked really, really well that actually makes practice much better um, and take away things that we've done that just don't help. So for example, I think that you know, rather than maybe issuing textbooks and stuff, a bit like when you're at university, maybe we have an, an online virtual learning environment for every course in the senior phase, for example. It might not be appropriate for every um, kind of year group in, in school age, you know, primary or early broad general education, but I can see it really having a value um, in the senior phase. Um, I also think in terms of people working together, so maybe encouraging young people to do projects online. I think that is a huge potential that, you know, previously we generally say kind of work individually for young people. I think this is going to allow us to do a lot more collaborative work for young people. What do you think? Definitely. And I think I think every conversation that we need to have around this, it needs to always come back to outcomes for children for young people and what what benefit is this going to be because ultimately we want a more efficient more collaborative workforce to be impacting positively on outcomes for 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 children and young people and I think that is ultimately what that would do I, I think I think having a an online space like you suggested there akin to university level kind of platform would be excellent further up the school I think for me the the benefit that I see to having a similar online space occupied with work and learning that's taking place is that that would increase parental engagement enormously and it really breaks down those barriers between learning as a formal thing that takes place only within the school building and actually opens it up and involves all stakeholders in that so much more and I think we've all got to a place now where we we know how to do that and actually it's becoming relatively um efficient I, I don't want to say it's easy but a big part of the complication at the start of all this was how are we going to do this but now we've got systems set up that allow us to just take yeah. that learning and put it there for I think we've got the huge benefit that we've got Glow, a national um, online platform that is free, that has software, you know, from Microsoft and Google Classroom in it, that we don't have to worry about whether people have access to software. Um, you know, once we can get them access, I think we don't then have to worry about the, the software. Can I tell you, and I'm going to be slightly negative for a second, or not so much negative, but my worry and, and some of the drawbacks and kind of has always been a concern yeah. um, is that we focus far too much on the technical how we do something and we forget that it's actually about learning and teaching. Yeah. So we can be so hit up in 
oh, right, are we going to have X number of Google Classrooms? How do we use Google Classroom? How do people submit it? Blah, blah, blah. When actually we get so fixated on the technical aspects and we, and we show our teachers and we show our young people about how to use the software and actually we'll forget about, right, what's actually effective in terms of high quality learning and teaching. Do you know, feedback, for example, it doesn't matter how you give feedback, but as long as that's happening. Yeah. Focus too much on, right, here's how you type it into this box. And that's my worry that, and I think that's what switches people off, you know, think, digital learning. I think, I think you're exactly right. I think um, viewing it through a, a, a lens where you're trying to sort of fix a problem almost or trying to say well and, and this is the technical way in which yeah. to do that focuses too much on the the, the technology around it I, I think that is totally valid I think that if we if we are just focusing on that we're missing out on the potential that digital technology had all along mm -hmm. and I think what we're saying is and it's worth celebration it's definitely cause for celebration that we're at this place where we have an upskilled workforce who have got to a place where actually it's removed a lot of those barriers that were there before in terms of but logging on and um, being able to find around all the features of a, of a program but actually teaching and learning needs to be right at the centre of it so I think there's two parts to that. The one part being that actually, well, we've got over those awkward conversations and those awkward fiddly bit where we're kind of teething problems. And now we're in a much better position because the foundations have been laid for us to actually interrogate that further and think about that in terms of a, what does this technology allow us to do to make teaching and learning transformative? And it's that, the model, the... Is it the SAMR model, the Samir model, SAMR, SAMR model, which is about looking at di digital technology and it's almost like a hierarchy in terms of with substitution at the bottom, augmentation, modification and redefining learning right at the top of that. And that's where you get to the really exciting stuff, isn't it? Yeah. You don't want to just be saying, OK, right, we do homework, so um, you just change it replicate it exactly what it would look like in the electronic world you actually want to be saying to young people and to, to colleagues that right how can we actually do something even better that we've never even imagined before but yes. now that we know that we've got this piece of kit we can use it and that's where it's really exciting and I would say probably there's a small percentage of people that are at that stage most people are probably just um, substituting and that's that's exactly what I think is happening. And that's the point of analysis, I think. That's the point where we can be critical and we can actually think, right, well, how do we drive that forward? Yeah. Because we can we can get lost, I think, in, in the moment just now of trying to... And I'm not talking down of anybody here. I'm talking about us all, but about sort of patting ourselves on the back for, for getting ourselves upskilled to a place where we were able to do this and, and completely transforming the way that we teach and deliver teaching and learning is, is nothing short of incredible. And I don't want to take away from that. But I think we're in a good position now, especially if we see this moving into um, a longer term situation we're in a position to be thinking about right how can we really enhance 
what digital technology can can offer to get us right up to that sort of redefining what we mean by what is possible and i think i, I started by talking about collaboration and that's one of the things that we we wouldn't have been able to do before that we now can in this way you and i are able to record a podcast here and we're and now we're away from each other do you know that that collaboration that's taken place there obviously we could have done this before but what i'm meaning is that the the ability that we now have because of our kind of awareness and understanding of technology is it opens up so many different avenues and routes and things that we could be doing that i, I really want teachers to try and investigate and explore and I, and I think what you've touched upon there is so important so before teachers and young people can engage in technology and use it as part of their learning i think we need to make sure that those people in school leadership teams in kind of system leadership have that awareness of the capability and the possibility as well mm. you know what is possible with technology and that is sometimes half the battle as well that you don't necessarily always have a confident or upskilled and team of people who are saying, right, we want digital technology. And most of the time it is about that substitution rather than, right, we want a transformative um, digital learning and teaching approach. And I think having, having young people access it through an online virtual environment is useful. But I think as well, we need to think about other things that we do in schools that can make that more exciting. And one of the things we've kind of um, taken from it is it's actually going to allow us to engage with our parents a lot more. So, for example, if we have an information evening. What we would traditionally do is we would invite everyone along to the assembly hall. Everyone would come along. They would listen to um, a presentation. They would have the opportunity to ask questions and then they would leave. Now, that's the rough format. OK, so whether it be P7 transition, they might have a tour of the school, all that kind of stuff. We can do all of that, but we can also record it so that the parents who are not able to attend can yeah. watch it at a time of their choosing or watch it again if they forget about some of the details yeah. or post questions and have that kind of supportive community with other parents on a kind of live website. Um, so I think the enormous potential there is just amazing we can yeah. potentially reach more families and more um, young people in a, in a virtual world than we can by inviting them into a school building. Because I think, you know, we're, we're acutely aware of the barriers that some families face and their own experiences of school. Yeah. I mean, actually them coming along to a parents' evening, a parents' information evening, actually is a huge barrier. So I think I'm quite excited by that and how we can learn from this experience and take forward some of these um, new approaches that I think are going to transform what schools look like. And I think, so interestingly there, again, obviously that parental engagement we know ultimately feeds down to a better, more enriched experience and then bit more positive outcomes for children and, and young people. And I think the same can be said, I can slightly more abstract rather than just the, the day to day teaching and learning in the classroom like what are the other aspects that can be improved with this so we've discussed their parental engagement and for me that's the kind of obvious win isn't it but also in terms of 
teacher professional learning I know myself that um, that's sometimes a limiting factor about like I finish school the school day finishes at quarter past three getting across town to a a professional learning opportunity takes me an hour to get there stuck in traffic can't quite get there and rushing to get there so I'm not in the right frame of mind I'm not in a kind of place where I can sit down and calmly enjoy that that can all happen online now and that's not to say even when lockdown's lifted this can all still be happening and there's there's been so many wonderful opportunities for professional learning we had a, a an online professional reading group where about 20 odd people from my staff collectively came together to discuss a text and we were discussing it there was a really rich conversation for an hour where we just had a chat and that that wouldn't have happened before because people would have had to make alternative arrangements whereas it was it was so efficient and easy for them to be able to attend that it made the attendance much higher and I think I think we need to capitalize on that and really think about um, I mean, there's also examples at a national level that you could never easily replicate. So the General Teaching Council had a focus on well-being and invited Claire Lavelle along. Um, there was an online forum. You'll be able to go and watch that just now, such yeah. as the benefit of digital learning. Um, Murray House School of Education have done one on self-evaluation for self-improvement and also leadership of change. And again, I was able to do my work and then slot in just like any other meeting or other task that I was doing for an hour, go along and log in, interact and get something from that. So I absolutely agree that professional learning will change um, because it's so much more accessible. You know, I'd be even questioning, do we need a Scottish learning festival in person? Why is it not all online? Well, I was just I was going to I was going to ask that question. What is lost? Because so I've um, now signed up for the into headship course on on the back of your wonderful recommendation of the course and speaking so highly about it. And I know that I'm going to be doing online learning, at least for the first portion of that course. And there was a part of me that kind of laments the loss of that human contact. Now, is there going to be what what are we missing if we just go fully online? I'm trying to be devil's advocate. Here. Yeah. What is, what is the what's the other side to this? I mean, without a doubt, there's gonna there's gonna be a an impact, isn't there? And because I look back very fondly on my internship um, experience, and for me, the thing that I now take away from obviously all the reading, the professional di- dialogue and engagement. Um, all the critical analysis, absolutely all of that. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was meeting a network of people. And that network of people I still have support from. We still kind of chat via WhatsApp. We plan to meet up, hopefully, when this all um, kind of disappears. So that kind of community is what is missed from an online world. I guess. But that's only for, I think, Interheadship is quite different in that it's for a whole year. You have the opportunity to get to know people really, really well um, because you're going along, you're spending the day, one day a month, you're then speaking to them in between times. So it's a longer period thing. So I think that would always, there would also always have to be some element of 
contact with people. But I think for the more one-off courses or events, that's harder to do is to build a connection with people. Mm -hmm. Do you know, it, it is still possible, arguably, but it is harder to do, especially when you're, you've had a really busy day and probably you just want to sit and listen. You don't want to engage with people because you're tired, because generally these things happen um, after school in a twilight session. So I do think that for those one-off kind of courses or events after school, I would say an online meet is better. But I would go one step further, Jude, in that I think of all the meetings I have to go to um, out with school, and I think I could just log in, and yeah. then I have more time in school because yeah. I'm just in my office accessing a meeting, and I think that will change, surely. I was thinking about that the other day. It's like someone has has given me the ability to teleport and I would be going back to a, a situation where I don't use that teleport button. <laughs> I've got a meeting to go to, boop, I'm there. And it just is yeah. incredible. And uh, there are so many elements of this, but I love living in the future. And we can, like, even down to the, it's not just even as sort of simple or as rudimental as a video call, do you know, like being able to just see each other. Because very quickly, I think you get used to the social cues that arrive and you get used to being able to speak to someone on a on a monitor. I think it's the, the real wonderful bits of technology around that, like being able to uh, share your screen, being able to take control and request control, being able to share PowerPoint presentations with videos on that, that really feed into actually better, more efficient models of learning. So for instance, I was I didn't make the um, Murray House webinar on self-improvement and I was gutted, but I just went on. Not only is it a teleport machine, it's also a time travel machine because I went back and I could go on and watch it. And it was just wonderful to be able to see that, but I could pause it take my notes and think about the questions that I would have asked at that time that you just can't do. And that sort of cognitive overload that takes place once you've had a full day's worth of teaching, learning, leading, and then you get to go to a course after, you just can't focus for that amount of time. And I think it's kind of forced us to face up to the reality of what profession, good professional learning looks like and how we can actually alter that with the use of digital technology. There's some fantastic opportunities without a doubt around professional learning and, and what schools are going to look like. I wanted to ask, uh, I kind of take it in a slightly different direction now, um, and obviously digital learning has been part of the curriculum, the 3 to 18 curriculum. Um, it's not quite a responsibility for all in the same way as literacy, numeracy and health and well-being. Although some people argue it, it is or it should be. Um, but it, it does appear in terms of within the, the kind of 3 to 18 curriculum, as I said. Do you think that we have got that right? Are we? Do we have a group of young people who are fully fit for the digital world? So, the, yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I, no, I, I don't think we do. I think there's a range of competing uh, voices around setting the digital learning um, agenda, as it were. Do you know, I think, and I've spoke quite openly before about trying to strip 
creativity and employability. And when you look at Higgius in a lot where digital innovation is, yes, very much framed within an economic model of trying to increase digital technology to make children ready for the workforce. And I think, again, it's no surprise that another podcast has lent itself to me ranting about this. It's a highly political issue. Everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's not hide it. Let's not shy away from it. But so I think I think that's had a part to play in it because I think there's been a, a sort of move, for instance, to, to get lots of young people coding. And again, I think the, the focus of that has not been on critical thinking on problem solving it's been it's been sold to educators as a this coding will account for this amount of the workforce and it's the highest growing industry and actually that's why coding is important rather than actually what is it about computer programming and the way of thinking about the world and the way of being able to think in terms of abstract concepts and being able to organize things efficiently that makes makes it makes you therefore a more rounded citizen and a more accomplished human rather than someone who's going to be out um, if you think back to one our one of our earliest um podcasts uh, we invited kate farrell um, Mm. who came and spoke to us about um computational thinking and that was her point back then that actually computing science can be taught without a computer it's all about processes, um, it's about problem solving, and that is what we're missing around digital uh, learning. But going back to my question, we've had Curriculum for Excellence for a number of years now. It's been part of what we expect for young people. Why hasn't that happened? Because DYW is a relatively recent thing. Digital learning was there first. Is it that some people don't feel confident going back to that or is it what is digital learning you know back to IT so is it using word processing spreadsheets all that kind of stuff or is it about being creative and and developing things like you know sound video graphics well I think I suppose the, the issue there about thinking about it in terms of um, sort of curricular progression and in how long uh, the curriculum has been around I suppose it's worth noting that it is one of the only experiences and outcomes to be rewritten is that right the technologies yeah. aspects so they are in recognition of the fact that things are changing and so like computer science has been in, enveloped as part of that and it's reference to that moving forward so I think there is a sort of changing shift and a change in focus I think even the terminology a while ago it used to be digital learning to enhance learning or digital IT to enhance learning but then it became at the heart of learning and then really changing the focus of it so I think I think what the, the point that we're getting at there is that it shouldn't be a silo a kind of additional add-on like a kind of computers in a box and we'll tick that off it should be something that is embedded but I don't I I, I think it's unnecessary to to take it away from learning in and of itself it should just be embedded in everything that we do, digital technology, if it was used well. My impression of it is absolutely there is the discrete subject of computing science that is taught in the same way as you know, geography or, or what other, whatever other topic you might think of. And then there is the side of it that actually enhances your learning and is a tool for learning. 
Mm-hmm. So young people taking a video, using the skills, having the confidence to do that is a key thing that could be used across the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, I'd really, really like to tap into why that isn't happening. I just, because, you know, we keep talking, so we have talked about the economic side of things and how important it is to have young people fit for the world of work. So whether you agree with that model or not, that has been the the narrative for some time around, you know, in 10, 20 years time, we're not going to have normal jobs. It's all going to be in the digital world. This experience maybe shows that that will be in the digital world even more. Mm-hmm. So I just think, what are we missing here? Are, are education professionals missing a trick here? Are we behind the times? Are we are we not upskilled enough? Is it investment in technology? Are we ever able to stay up to date? You know, you've only got to look at the most um, sold product in the world, you know, the iPhone. It, it updates every year mm-hmm. and more than once a year. But how can you, how can we afford to keep up with that? Uh, wow, that was a, a range of at least 25 questions. <laughs> Oh, wonderful question. I think the the sort of main thrust behind what you're saying is the searching for the why, trying to figure out the why haven't why haven't we got to a place where this is just natural? Why why has it been a surprise that when this pandemic arrives, why is it a surprise that we're having to scramble together to get a kind of coherent digital learning platform in place. It, it shouldn't be. And I think what we've noticed in learning from businesses is that there's been a, a, a range of businesses that are able to adapt without much um, change. And I think it's because partly because our currency as educators is human relationships. And actually, I would always value human relationship above all else in education and all for and I think I've maybe used this phrase before but I like it but any um teacher that can be replaced by a computer should be replaced by a computer because if anyone is they're they're clearly not good enough and they're not able to invest in that relationship and that's maybe why we've missed out on the extra bits and moving forward like businesses so you were talking there about uh, professional learning taking place online, being able to increase the scope of contact that you have across um, multiple stakeholders. It's stuff that businesses have been doing for, for decades now, you know, not just years. And actually, we are behind on that. And in recognising where we sit in, in a relatively volatile world where we don't know if this is going to happen again, we don't know what other vulnerabilities we have as a system it is something that we need to invest in and not just as a risk assessment in a kind of case of a rainy day situation it's more in a like we started this conversation with with actually investing in this would enhance our provision to a level beyond what we were ever able to do without digital learning absolutely i just i feel we've missed a trick and maybe this is going to be that shift change mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think what that what what the trick missing is, because I think I think we we we've discussed at great length on this show before the sort of change in nature of the 
of the certainly the Scottish educational landscape in terms of a much more of a of a thrust towards building relationships, nurture, health and well-being, um, restorative practice and additional support needs and trying to account for a wide range of of um, of aspects, you know, a wide range of things that we're trying to, to do. And I think that's been a very positive thing. And is it maybe just been that the, the focus has not been on this as much? So is it is partly that, I think, is it is it also partly to do with the professional learning part of it you know that people were not at a confident place it wasn't something that was entirely necessary for them to do their everyday jobs or their kind of historical part of what their job has always been it wasn't necessary to do you could still have done a very good job and got excellent results and had wonderful relationships and had children with positive experiences without even ever using digital technology. Yeah. I wonder if on reflection that the reason we are in this uh, situation and, and state of affairs is going back to what we spoke about earlier that we have not focused on the, the potential in terms of learning and teaching but instead we focused on the technical aspect of you're not allowed to do this, this website's blocked, you can only order from this supplier, and if you do order, then this is the type of thing. So we've been very quite um, restrictive in terms of what we wanted. So therefore, people don't naturally feel confident or innovative because they're being told all the things they can't do. So you can't go on this website, you're not allowed that software because it's not safe and it doesn't comply with GDPR. So therefore, and all these things are really important. I'm not saying throw them out, no, but I'm but just trying to explain the why as to how do you actually get innovation if you're being told you can't do this, you can't do that. And we've looked at this problem from a very technical point of view rather than from an innovative learning and teaching point of view. Yeah. I, th I think you've nailed it on the head there. And the very definition of what it means to be innovative is to be doing things differently, to be thinking outside yeah. the box, to be breaking rules, to not yeah. be not be adhering to status quo and then for us to be in a world or in a system through nobody's fault because they're all important things. Data protection, data protection, child protection, online internet safety, all these things cannot just be done in a in a sort of slapped that sort of way yeah so I think that kind of school culture is really important isn't it I guess so moving on then um where have you seen the kind of best practice what have you seen and what have the have the ingredients been for that best practice in school yeah. I, th I think for me and to, to think wider than just our current situation I think I think there's been a lot of good practice and a lot of really good things, mainly around collaboration, professional learning that I've seen. And I think we've, we've spoke about these. But before that, for me, the, the sort of really transformative things are when you have opportunities for genuine ownership over learning for young people to be taking place. So children directing their own direction of travel throughout learning not just um paying lip service to personalization and choice but genuine 
an exploration through learning opportunity that I've seen through a, a range of things in terms of filmmaking, um, building websites, creating audio podcasts, all these sorts of things that children are able to do and to collaborate with each other. That's where I've seen it, its truest potential. And it's those those four C's which are quite often bandied about in, in digital learning dialogue about critical thinking, creativity, communication and collaboration. And it's when I've seen all four of those at play is when I've seen it at its, at its absolute potential. And I think once you've seen that take place or even like two or three of them taking place at the same time of those 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 core elements, that's when you see that that transformative ability of digital technology. But it's scary. And there's not much control for, for, for class teachers. So I think it does come down to what your view on education is and what your purpose and what your role as an educator is, because you're not always going to have control of that when you're when when you're really allowing digital technology to, to reach its full potential. Actually, its full potential is when it's it's an independent thing, you know, that learning. Uh, when that's one of the inhibitors of innovation again, isn't it? If we're trying to have control over something, people are then not going to innovate as a result because they don't feel trusted, they don't feel it's safe, they actually are not given the space to be creative and think differently. So unless we change our approach, that's not going to change. And that feels like a, a really low point to be getting at. But I think... I don't think so. I think it's important to have these conversations. And I think, you know, we know there is stuff that we can do to encourage and motivate and and relinquish some control. Because arguably, some of the things that we're trying to control, we don't need to control. Yeah. Like why? So in some aspects, why are we saying to some people, oh, you have to use Google Classroom over Teams, for example? Why not just let people use whatever they feel comfortable using and and actually trust that their skills have been developed, that they are able to use any piece of software? Yeah. Actually doesn't matter. And I'm a, a firm believer as a computer science teacher that if someone has those problem solving skills, those um, skills to be able to um, interpret and use software, you actually don't need to know how to use software because you naturally are inquisitive, you will go in and you'll try something and whether it's something that you're familiar with or not, you will figure it out. Yeah. And I, th- I think that is right. And actually the, the limiting factors are the things that need to be addressed, aren't they? The the, the data protection parts, the, the red tape, the things that are holding us back. And that's part of, again, what has been acknowledged throughout this whole thing is how can we reduce that red tape because yeah. it's, it's ultimately impeding on children's learning and that's what nobody wants it to, to be doing. I think though also in talking about good practice it's when when people are able to operate within the limitations to still create innovation within that you know and I think we've got just like there's so many schools across uh, the country anyway that have invested in iPads. I think they're a wonderful tool for, for teaching and learning. But the, the suite of apps that come free with that, that are all like obviously data 
protection compliant because it's all stored within within the iPad. The suite of apps like Keynote and Pages and GarageBand and Movie Maker, there's enough there just on what comes with the iPad for you to create a completely um, fantastic curriculum and, and, and embed a huge amount of really like learning activities and learning that would redefine what we're thinking of yeah. all for free or that it comes with the iPad. Same with the access to Microsoft Teams or Google Classroom and all these things all have that ability to allow people to collaborate, to allow people to create, to allow people to communicate in ways that they wouldn't be able to do and to allow people to critically solve problems by using critical thinking to solve problems that they wouldn't be able to do without the access to that. So I think I'm particularly enjoying the Adobe Spark suite of yeah. apps. I think they're just superb, you know, creating web pages and um, video, but also graphics, like really simple graphics. Just yeah. love it. It's so easy, it's so professional, it just looks smart as well. And I just think something that's so simple, that's what people want. Anyone can use that. Yeah, and it is. It's it's democratizing, isn't it? It's sort of taking it away from the privileged few that were able to do things before, mm-hmm. and actually putting it into the hands. So, like, so I remember I did film and media at university, and even when I was studying, I don't know how many years ago what that was now. What fifteen years ago? Twenty years? Anyway, a, a long time ago, and uh, it was when I was kind of initially getting into filmmaking you had to have like a whole computer set up and buy another separate uh, editing suite that might cost you a couple hundred pounds and a camera that cost you a few hundred pounds and then the the process of editing it together so it was it was a semi-professional outfit you know where it took me a while to learn how to do those things. Say again? It was expensive from a money point of view but also from a time point of view wasn't it? and knowledge barriers and all these barriers that were in place. Whereas now, I, my school put together, like a, we've got a staff, a very, very big staff, who were able to create an online virtual sports day relay race by one person having loads of videos sent to them, editing it all together in the space of a day and then uploading it to a kind of shared platform where all of our the people in our community could watch that. And that wouldn't be possible, that level of, communication of a message, creating ethos and sharing our values and sharing that team spirit, being able to communicate that message, being able to collaborate that way. This wouldn't have been possible. And that the, the whole thing cost her nothing because iMovie's free on, on the iPad, you know? It's just so amazing. We'll pick up on that point, because I think it's a really, really good one. And we touched upon it earlier around equity. Um, you said didn't want to kind of lower the tone, but I think it's a really important one. And, and you've touched upon there that some local authorities, some schools have gone down the the route um, of purchasing iPads for every member of staff and every young person. Most recently, Borders Council, and I think Glasgow City have plans for all their young people um, to have that. Obviously, that's hugely expensive. Um, It is also a huge investment, though. It's a huge um, privilege. I would say if you are saying that actually young people, staff, education, that is worth it in terms of investing that. Yeah. Is that what it takes, do you think, to actually achieve equity? Because um, quite often you hear that, you know, schools will not recommend software or recommend a, piece, a device 
because not everyone can afford it. Um, mm. And then naturally with issues around bring your own device, people are coming with their own software, their own device, and therefore you naturally do not have equity. So is that what we have to do as a, as a country to achieve equity? Around digital learning, I know there are other issues around equity that we're not going to go into because it's no. a huge area. Um, but would that help, do you think? I, I mean, I, I certainly think it would help in terms of a step in the right direction. And I think what it would do is create an environment or an ethos where it was almost a, an, an unavoidable thing that you had to invest your time and energy and effort into. Because if, if, if the iPads were bought, and that's a hugely significant investment, then it would necessitate the professional learning that goes alongside that it would necessitate you changing your planning at, at kind of school leadership level your 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 improvement plan and what you would be looking for from from your community to be able to engage with that so i think it it would help because of the the domino effect and the impact of it i don't think simply buying ipads and giving them to children is is going to impact upon anything you have to be really clear on the reasons why you would be doing that and what you're wanting from yeah, that. I think it is just a, a solution in itself to <laughs> improve equity just by giving everyone an iPad. It really yeah. has to be a strategy, there has to be investment in professional learning, there needs to be a plan to renew that over time as, as that those devices um, kind of break down or stolen or damaged, you know. Um, but I think, and I, for me, the real focus has to be on encouraging and promoting it as a tool in the classroom as well. It cannot just be something that is done at home. It has to be in school um, and used for young people to see the benefit. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's why... It just it always comes back to the purpose behind it. And it's been the nature of our whole conversation this evening, because actually we're not talking about a device or a piece of software. We're or a, teaching, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. There's that, that phrase that's banded about again in, in digital learning debates. But nobody buys a drill because they want a drill. You buy a drill because you want a hole. And that's the thing. You have to think about what it's going to be able to do. We're not buying iPads because we want iPads. We're buying iPads because we want innovation within teaching and learning. And that is a wonderful tool to be able to do that and to achieve that goal. There are other ways to be able to do that. But actually, I think what we've seen just now and what all the research shows, there's a wealth of research that backs up that digital learning, albeit very expensive, has a significant impact on, on teaching and learning and and I think there's so many aspects to this and you can't remove any bit of it in particular without looking at the whole picture yeah but I think, I think what we need to do is is get ourselves up to a more equitable standard across the country whereas just now at the moment it's still very much up to it's a kind of devolved decision how much you as an establishment spend on digital technology whereas actually I feel that there needs to be a, a, a more blanket approach to that, much like we're seeing in, in, in some local authorities across the country. So I'm looking here at the Education Endowment Foundation website around um, digital technology and it's saying it's moderate impact for moderate costs based on extensive 
um, evidence. And obviously that's when compared with everything else. Um, yeah. And what they're saying is exactly what you've suggested, um, that they estimate that on average, £300 per pupil for new equipment and technical support and a further £500 per class for professional development and support. So the costs are extremely high in a in a public sector where there isn't that kind of money going around. And some of the things they ask people to consider, and we've covered some of them here, is effective use of digital technologies driven by learning and teaching goals rather than specific technology. And we've said that about the iPad and software. The technology is not an end in itself. Um, and you should be really clear about how any new technology will improve teaching and learning interactions. Um, they're saying it doesn't automatically improve attainment, and we've kind of touched upon that. Mm. Um, and really that teacher time is needed for support um, so that training is offered as well. Yeah. Where would people find that report, Jace, if they were wanting to have a look? Well, that's on educationendowmentfoundationorg.uk, and if you click on digital technology, you can have a wee look at that. Excellent. I, I definitely recommend uh, checking out that website. There's a range of other reports on on so many different parts of, of um, teaching and learning and life in schools that it's just a wonderful place if you're looking to becoming more sort of research informed in your practice. It's a, it's a really good place to go to read some of their reports. Excellent. Well, I think that's been a, a really important discussion, a really timely discussion. And I think, as as always, when I'm having discussions around digital learning, which I, I frequently do, I think I, I do become hopeful in some respects because I think it's great that we're having these discussions and moving forward. Can't help but be frustrated at the pace of change in terms of how long it's taken us to get there. But I think overwhelmingly, what what I've seen recently and what I've read about recently and this this surge of positive feeling and collaboration and communication that's 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 been made possible in all walks of life uh, is all thanks to the power of digital technology and I, I think that will be hard to forget when when we are back to school so I'm, I'm really encouraged by by the progress that's been made and what what I'm, I'm excited to see what the future is going to bring. Absolutely. And I think my kind of closing thought is that for us to take the opportunities forward from this, we really need to harness the progress we've made. And I think not probably not just revert back to what we've done. I think we absolutely need to look at the opportunities around engaging um, staff in their professional learning, but also engaging parents um in a much wider way than we've ever been able to do before. So I think there's huge positives coming out of this. I just wanted to leave with a final thought, and that was around the question is whether you are a digital native or a digital immigrant. Have you heard those phrases before, Jude? Yeah, yeah, I have. And it's yeah, a really interesting concept, isn't it? And do you want to explain? So there's there's a notion, and some people kind of base it on a, a temporal 
thing about when you were born and about yeah. the changes that you made. So if you're a digital native, kind of tending to be a millennial or a child that's born young, sort of a child that's maybe 30 now, you know, kind of within their 30s, um, are seen as digital natives, sort of treating it as a, as a sort of using the geographical metaphor there, or is it? Their life they spent with technology, the internet, all that kind of stuff. So they're comfortable with it. Or is it something that's that's new to you, that's been forced upon you, that you're having to learn the new ways and the customs of digital technology? It's not always necessarily, uh, and I've, I've seen people kind of further that analogy, thinking about it, not just about when you were born, but more about your kind of attitude and thought process and, and approaches towards any form of new technology. But there is a, I think there is a distinction there and there's, there is a, 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 definitely a school of thought of people that think, oh, well, I just don't know how to do this and almost wear it as a badge of honour. So, oh, well, I'm yeah. no good at technology and I'm not good at this. And then there is a group of people that embrace it fully. Um, and I, I do feel that it's something that, that that is, and that's kind of the crux of what we've spoke about tonight, isn't it? It's that there's a there is a divide. Absolutely, but hopefully that gap will narrow as we move forward. Definitely. Well, thanks very much for listening to this episode of Edu Blether. Um, please, if you can, rate us on your chosen podcast app. And as always, be great to hear your feedback. You can contact us via Twitter at EduBlether.